1: It's just not enough Oh,
2: baby I'm
1: oh, afraid
2: My darling, I Can't
1: get enough If you're loving
3: That's right, we're listening to Barry White and here at Shtetl, we're hoping to get you in the this week as we count down to Montreal's second annual Festival of Unexpected Jewish Learning, Arts and Culture. Stay tuned for Jewish Pirates, Leonard Cohen biographer, Leah Liebowitz, punk Jews, satellites and celebrities and more. Plus, we look into who's really behind the upcoming global Pork shortage. So to listen to this or past episodes of Shtetl on the Shortwave, you can download them at iTunes or stream them at shtetlmontreal.com. What
1: kind of love is this That you're giving me Is it in your kiss Or just because you're sweet Girl, all I know Is every time you're here, I feel a change Something rude
2: Scream your name, do what you got to do, it. darling, I, I can't get enough for your love, baby. Girl, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know why
1: I can't get enough for your love, baby. Oh, no, baby. Girl, if I can only make you see and make you understand.
3: Hi, and welcome to Shtetl on the Shortwave. I'm your host, Tamara Kramer, and we just can't get enough of the Le lineup this year. There's more than 100 presenters that are going to be hosting sessions at the festival on October 14th at Espace Réunion, and you can check out the whole schedule at lemood.ca, and Shtetl is very proud to be involved with the festival and to be a media sponsor, and I'm personally so excited for all the local Montrealers that are going to be presenting and all the all the people from out of town that are coming to Montreal to talk about Jewish subjects from such an eclectic perspective it's really really mind-blowing so today on the show we're going to give you a little taste of what to expect at Lamood Montreal's largest Jewish festival of arts culture and learning and we're going to start off with a little known history of Jewish pirates. At the end of the 15th century, the Spanish Inquisition forced many Jews to flee the empire. The most adventurous among them took to the high seas as freewheeling outlaws. And I sat down with documentary filmmaker Errol Araf to ask him how he came across the unexpected world of Jewish pirates. Who were these Jews and what drove them to pillage and plunder?
0: The whole idea that Jews, the Jews that we know could become pirates swashbuckling pirates raiding attacking spanish galleon on the high seas was absolutely amazing i had no idea as a sephardic jew that that some of my ancestors were actual uh, pirates and it, it started with the Spanish expulsion of Jews in 1492. Some of them, instead of going east, decided uh, to look for treasure, vengeance, and above all, religious freedom. And the only way, as Jews wanted by the Inquisition, they could accomplish this, was becoming pirates in the new world.
3: Can you tell me about some of the pirates that, that you learned about?
0: Well, the most interesting one is a rabbi, Rabbi Palash. He was born in in Cordoba, but eventually settled in Morocco, in Fez, and became an admirer of the Ottoman Jewish pirate Sinan, And when he grew up, he wanted to emulate him and he had a score to settle with the Spanish. So he formed alliances with the Dutch as well as the English. And sailing under Dutch colors, he operated as a pirate, very successfully, and made a great contribution to the economic development of of the Dutch uh, kingdom, And in 1616, when, when, when he, he died, uh, the Dutch gave him a state funeral in recognition of his accomplishments. Uh, the man worked as a spy in the court of Philip III. He worked together with James I. He was the founder of the first synagogue in Holland. He was a businessman. And here we have a man for all season, if you will, Rabbi Palash. And I find this man who never left home without his uh, kosher cook uh, to be the most extraordinary Jewish pirate I have ever encountered.
3: Okay, when you say pirate, What exactly does that mean? You know, some people think of pirates of the Caribbean, or we have these stereotypical ideas of what a pirate is. What were these Jewish pirates doing? What was their lifestyle like?
0: Their lifestyle was one of looking for fame, fortune, freedom, and above all, religious freedom, so that they could practice their faith without the interference of the Inquisition. So in the New World, they looked for safe havens. Basically, they had a franchise. They paid a commission to powers under whose colors they sailed the seas. In other words, they were given the freedom to attack, uh, to rob Spanish galleon and um, take possession of the gold, the precious stones, jewels, silver, that the ships were carrying. And it was also an act of vengeance for what happened to their families back in Spain as a result of the expulsion, the inquisition, the auto da fe, uh, it was a very difficult period in the history of the Jewish people. But they were also extremely proud Jews. They took names like Moses, David, Solomon. They had ships named Queen Esther. I mean, it was, I'm Jewish, I am proud, in your face and with the wealth and fortune I accumulate, I'm gonna build for myself and my people in the new world, a place where I can practice my faith freely. So those two two elements came beautifully together and they succeeded beyond their wildest dreams. Take the case of Enriquez Cohen, who uh, organized in 1628, off the waters of cuba one of the world's biggest acts of piracy where he ransacked 12 spanish ships and in today's dollars the the the, the, what he was able to confiscate was in excess of one billion dollars which is a
3: huge today's dollars
0: yes of course a commission was paid to the dutch under whose colors he sailed.
3: Do you feel like this is a part of Jewish history that is something to be proud of?
0: Well, under the circumstances, yes. Many of Jews who were expelled from Spain, by the time they reached the ghettos of Venice or the Ottoman Empire, as was the case with my ancestors, they went through an ordeal that is very difficult to imagine. The expulsion was bad enough. But to spend years on the high seas, to be attacked and robbed and enslaved by other pirates, till they could find a port that would give them refuge, it was a colossal ordeal. They lost everything in Spain for the crime of being Jewish and for the crime of refusing to convert. So. Any operation that would economically damage Spain was an act of resistance.
3: Yes. Is, uh, is there maybe one other colourful story that you learned to, about one of the Jewish pirates that you could share with us? Yes,
0: uh, the, the most interesting pirate is, is, is a name called Baltazar. He is the Jewish Jack Sparrow, <laughs> if there ever was one. He was a famous pirate, wanted by the authorities, but he did not know how to swim, which makes the story even more hilarious. He is eventually captured and brought to the port of Curacao. And instead of taking him to the castle for imprisonment, the authorities fear that he might escape. So they decide to imprison him on the ship. They pass the death sentence on him. He will be hanged the next morning. Remember, he doesn't know how to swim. So he fashions with empty wine jugs that he finds in his confined space. He transforms them into swimming aids. He manages to kill his captors, jumps ship with his swimming aids, hides in a swamp. He is pursued relentlessly by the authorities. Afterwards, he fashions a kind of a raft and starts going downriver till he comes across another group of Jewish pirates who are in the midst of their prayers in the middle of nowhere. He makes them an offer that they could not refuse. He tells them about the ship in which he had been held captive. He tells them about the gold and the silver in that ship and he says, why don't you join me? We go back, we take over the ship, and we sail away. They reach the ship and they disguise themselves as people who are bringing provisions on board. Salted meat. <laughs> and the soldiers, the guards, assume that the ship is being uh, supplied for, for sailing. So they let them on board. They kill their captors. They take the ship. They sail away. And we never hear again of what happened to the Jewish pirate Balthazar. And this, we have it in, 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 in the records, but if there is ever a Mel Brooks character among the Jewish pirates, I'm sure it's, 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 it's Mr. Baltazar.
3: Wow, wow, what a great story. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you so much for coming on to Shtetl on the shortwave. My pleasure. So you can hear more from Errol Araf at 7.15 on October 14th at his Le session, Blazing Sails, Jewish Pirates of the Caribbean. And our next guest is Leah Liebowitz, author of A Broken Hallelujah, The Life of Leonard Cohen. But first to get us in the mood, we'll take a listen to Monsieur Cohen. This is Different Ideas off of his new album.
1: Cells on different sides of a line nobody drew Though it only be one in the higher eye Down here will we live it is too While the shadowy guest Kindles of light for the last Both of us say We're lost to obey But frankly I don't like your tone
3: that. Leonard Cohen different ideas of his new album Old Ideas and uh, he still obviously has it and uh, we're going to be talking now with Leah Leibovitz in addition to being the author of A Broken Hallelujah The Life of Leonard Cohen Leibovitz is also the author of several other books including The Chosen Peoples America, Israel and The Ordeals of Divine Election he's a senior writer for Tablet Magazine and a frequent contributor to The Atlantic and to The New Republic and he's joining us live on the phone from the Big Apple, uh, Liel, welcome to Staddle on the Shortwave. Hello, hello. Hi, how are you doing? Uh,
4: very well. I mean, a- any conversation that you know follows a Leonard Cohen song is just already, you know, already blessed.
3: I think this is going to be happening to you a lot, considering the book you've just written. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, you know, it's something very weird about writing a biography, you, you sort of spend two or three years living another man's life. I was just fortunate enough that in, in my case, that, that man was Leonard Cohen.
3: Hmm. So let me ask you a question. Having, having spent all this time uh, researching material about his life, what did you learn about him that you didn't know before?
2: I would say
4: that the one major thing that that really surprised me is the the extent. Uh, this this may sound ridiculous, but the extent to which he was always uh, incredibly sure of of what his life's project was. When I, when I started researching this book, I thought that um, I I thought that I would discover Cohen was a little bit like Bob Dylan. In other words, someone who clearly had uh, aspirations that were. Uh, theological, that were religious that saw his role as singer, songwriter prophet uh minstrel entertainer and and kind of you know stumbled onto this onto this uh, mode of of speaking uh you know almost speaking in tongues um What really stunned me and I was very privileged to have access to his archives is that from a very early age, uh, he understood exactly his mission. The, the, the key point to me, perhaps in his life, to, to, the, to the extent that it is you know, fair or, or, or you know, not ridiculous to speak of any one life having sort of like a pivotal moment, but certainly the pivotal moment of my book, is a speech that he gives in 1963 in the, uh, in the Jewish Library in Montreal. At this point, he's, you know, he's, he's barely 30 years old, uh, and he, he walks in. He has uh, two successful uh, books. of of poetry behind me as a novel. Um, And he gives this stunning speech in which he says uh, to a packed audience, uh, you people have betrayed everything that Judaism is about. You have taken uh, a vibrant religion and you've turned it into... Into this priestly occupation, and he has this amazing definition that just cracked me up. Although I, I imagine it was far less amusing if you're sitting in, in the audience. He said, "Let me tell you what you know. What religion is like? So, so, the priest is the guy who goes to the old lady after her canary has has flown out of the cage, and convinces her that that the bird will one day be back." And that, form of, that particular form of optimism is what we call religion.
2: Uh-huh. And,
4: and, and Cohen said, you know, that's fake. You know, that's phony. That leads you to the sort of life in which all you care about is putting, you know, putting, putting names on, on, on buildings. Uh, and, and what I want to do is I want to continue the tradition uh, of the prophets uh... i want to to continue the tradition of those uh, men and women who, who understood that sort of the divine calling uh... it doesn't live in the synagogue or or you know in the community it, it, it lives in the wild and you need to pay very close attention uh... to it and and you need to follow it wherever it goes because it's ever-changing and because this is the case i'm going to leave you now i i i can only i can't be a part of you i need to go into self exile and and you could only imagine what the reaction to this was. Mm-hmm. He was called all sorts of names mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, the, the kind of names you would probably get called now for saying the same thing but but it was amazing to me uh, the the degree of of his self awareness this is this is what his career has always been about, and and the question was trying to find the greatest form of expression to 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 communicate this he tried poetry and and he succeeded very well but he abandoned it eventually because he realized that you know all he could do with poems is 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 produce pretty words Uh, he switched to novels and and was very successful at that too but realized that something wasn't clicking and then um miraculously unbelievably at the age of 35 he says to himself oh i know i know how it's it's going to be music
3: Hmm. it was just like that at 35 he decided to become a musician
4: it's just like that. Another part of like my favorite um, minutes uh, moments in the book is that uh, he is he's invited to this to this gathering of of all of Canada's greatest uh, uh, poems, and you know Irving Layton's there, all all the other you know people you can imagine are there, and it's it's uh, shortly after New Year's Day, and and they're sitting there, and it's snowing outside, and there's alcohol, and everyone's reciting poetry, and and he says, uh, well, you know, I'm going to be the next Bob Dylan. And they say, "Well, they're they're at this point, you know, 25, 30, 35 years older." They say, "Well, who's Bob Dylan?" Oh and God. and Leonard Cohen says, "Oh, you know, hold on, I'll I'll run to the store, I'll I'll get some Dylan records, I'll play them for you." And he runs out and he comes back with, with the Dylan records and he puts them on, and people are you know apoplectic. They say, "What is what is this terrible noise? Who is who is this guy? He can't sing. He can't really play the guitar. Come on now."
2: Little did they know.
4: Says, well, <laughs> right, and another coin says, "Well, he's the greatest living poet, and I'm going to be just like him." Uh-huh. And and then he leaves, uh, and and the rest of the poets in the room say, "Oh, yeah, right, you're going to be a singer." And you know, a couple of years later, yes, 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 he was.
3: Wow. So, how did you do the research for this book? Was it hanging out with him? How did you How did you research, for Broken Hallelujah? Uh, it, it was,
4: not hanging out with him. Uh, hanging out with him would not have been research. It, it would have been, you know, squealing and, and adulation. I'm, I'm, I'm a fan, and I don't, I don't, uh, at any point try to, try to kind of suppress or hide uh, that fact. This is a strange book. It's not a biography. I, I, I skip through, you know, major, major life events, and there's just a great biography by Sylvie Simmons that came out a couple of months ago. That's, you know, I could not recommend more. Um, To anyone who's interested in in Leonard Cohen's life. What I wanted to to ask is this question, you know, how come that at 77, um, when all of his peers are either, you know, four or five decades dead or sort of consigned to these sort of irrelevant nostalgia tours, uh, he not only gets his career 's first you know top ten record but also seemingly you know more and more and more and more and more culturally relevant to us today what what is What is it about his ideas? what is it about his art uh that that still so attracts us so to do that you really you really have to do two things uh the first thing is that you really have to listen and and pay attention and and kind of try to get to 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 what to what the art is trying to tell you he 's often said. You know my my songs are you know a diary set to guitar music, and I think there's a lot to that. The second thing that I did, and again, I was very fortunate to to have been sort of granted access to to uh, the archives is really try to look at the the record uh, of his life so so you see him uh you know on on tour in nineteen seventy two uh zonked out in drugs beyond belief, but also very angry because, you know, here, here are our fans who are making all kinds of demands on him because they see him, you know, as a commodity. They see him as an entertainer. And, and he, he didn't start out to be that. And he's, he's grappling mightily uh, with, 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 with what to do with that. So, so you really kind get, of get a sense of, of a man working out his ideas uh, on, on sort of the grand stage imaginable. And it was such a pleasure. To be in that mindset for two years.
3: What what was Leonard Cohen's relationship to performing live then? Like, how did he feel about it? How did he perceive it? Was it something that he always enjoyed, oh, or
4: it, it dis- despised it? Uh, yeah, yeah, feared it, uh, loathed it. Uh, there's there's no, you know, I don't think there's there are strong enough terms to to describe his dislike. So the first famous story is that his very first public performance uh, on a grand scale is Judy Collins. Is uh, curating this concert against uh, atomic energy, I believe in sixty three, sixty four, and he he just written her uh, all kinds of songs that we know and love, like Sisters of Mercy and Suzanne, et cetera. And um, she says, "Well, we're, we're playing, uh, you know, this really big gig in Manhattan. Why don't you come and and come on stage?" And and he comes on stage, and he plays the first two bars, I think, of Suzanne, and then he just looks at the crowd and apologizes. And runs backstage. (laughs) And Judy Collins says, well, you know. You, got, you, you, you gotta finish the song and, and she sort of you know takes his hand and, and accompanies him back on stage and sings with him for a while to make him feel comfortable I, I think, I think there, there, there are several things that, at play here I think that the first thing is that he's genuinely uh, uh, did not uh, for the longest time enjoy the sort of spectacle of, of standing alone before an audience and, and communicating with a guitar because it's, it's a very intimate mode of being and, and his songs are very raw And but the other thing is is, is what I said, and and a lot of my book actually is about that, it's about the kind of management of expectations. You know, he he, he had said in interviews before how uh, disingenuous it felt when you wrote the song, right, and you wrote the song to probably a girl, uh, him most likely, uh, or to yourself, and you wrote it six, seven years ago, and it had all this meaning in the world, and here you are singing it six, seven years later. Ten fifteen, twenty, thirty mm. times a week, mm. um, it becomes you know a commodity and 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 something like Suzanne uh, ought never to become a commodity you know these mm. are these are really revelatory moments so so it was I think really difficult for him. I would say that you know, having followed him uh, obsessively, obviously throughout the course of my life at every given concert that I could afford to go to, I think he had really. Um, really warmed up to it. And I think one of the things that made him warm up to it, uh, well, that is true from the very beginning, but specifically true now, is the fact that he has this this family-like band around him that really makes uh, makes the experience that much more intimate and that much more bearable.
3: Wow. Okay. Well, I'm so looking forward to hearing your session at Le Mood. And thank you, Liel, so much for coming on to Shuttle on the Shortwave.
4: Thank you very much, Amara. It was a pleasure.
3: Okay, take care. Bye bye. Bye. So that was Liel Lipovitz, the author of Broken Hallelujah, The Life of Leonard Cohen. And this is Lullaby. Bye, Leonard Cohen.
1: They've fallen in love And they're talking in tow Katzachtzi Stettl auf Shortwave auf CKUT 90.3 FM in Montreal.
3: on the shortwave. And uh, now I want to introduce you to another Lamoud presenter, Benjamin Davies of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Uh, at the festival on October 14th, Davies is going to be discussing his involvement in the Satellite Sentinel Program. And it's a project that is using satellites to prevent genocide. And we have a clip of how, of how he got started into this. So take a listen.
5: One day George Clooney said to John Prendergast, celebrities get photographed by paparazzis all the time, but I'm sitting here in Sudan, and for some reason we don't know anything about what's going on over the border. There's got to be a way to get war criminals to have as much exposure as I get. And they thought about this and they talked to uh, my director and they talked to a satellite company called Digital Globe and they pulled together the Satellite Sentinel project. And what that did was it put Harvard Humanitarian Initiative in a position to run operations for three satellites that circled the globe and were able to monitor hotspots um, on what would be the border between Sudan and the newest country in the world, South Sudan, to detect deter uh, and document threats to vulnerable populations and try and deter uh, the resumption of full-scale war in the region.
3: How effective is this awareness of atrocities in actually stopping the reality on the ground?
5: Unfortunately, right now, We don't have enough people on the ground. Sudan is a non-permissive environment. And what that means is um, reporters, uh, UN peacekeepers, uh, the kinds of people who could give us good information about what's happening on the ground aren't actually allowed in southern Sudan. So, the best information we have is actually taken from 300 miles above the Earth's surface, and that's with satellites. Now, we know we've done a fantastic job of getting information out. Um, While we were on the project, we had 8,000 favorable media hits. Uh, Our products were put in front of uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, the U.N. Security Council, the House of Lords, 60 members of Congress, and the President of the United States. So, when it comes to Getting the reports and the images out there, we know we've done a great job. But does that build political will to stop what's going on in the region? Um, It's hard to tell. It's a little too soon. Certainly, there hasn't been an immediate intervention into violence against civilians.
3: So I wanted to ask if there were any national autonomy issues that come into play with these satellites. Like, isn't it a little bit like spying? Mm -hmm
5: sure, sure, this comes up all the time. Now, I can say definitively, this is not spying, this is not espionage, and and it's uh, it it sounds a little funny, but the reason why is pretty clear when sputnik went up and uh, we were in the middle of the cold war we needed treaties uh, and regulations about what we do with objects in space and the rule became that space is uh is basically open territory to everyone as long as it's a over 300 miles up, or another way to look at it is, after um, you run out of oxygen. If there's no oxygen in the atmosphere, then you can have a satellite up there and you can take a picture of whatever you like. And that's all we really do.
3: On the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative website, there's a whole page of of press clippings. And one one of the clippings was talking about um, the need for ethics in crisis mapping. Can you address that a little bit?
5: Oh yeah, sure so it's it's really kind of fascinating what is happening with technology. Um, first of all, I have to give credit to uh, the young people I work with who are students from all over New England and sometimes much further um, and and they've really adapted quite quickly to technologies that even you know uh, people who are five ten years older have a harder time getting used to and what I've learned is um, even though young people are very good at adapting to new technologies and and using them for fantastic purposes um, sometimes they don't have the experience um, that our staff and our faculty do in terms of what are the real implications on the ground when you take a fantastic technology like a satellite point it at a war zone and then uh, publish a report showing irrefutable evidence of what's going on And when we talk about standards and ethics, the thing we're talking about is um, it gives you an exponential power to have an impact on what's happening on the ground in near real time. You know, when we get these images, it can sometimes be three hours from when they were taken. And that means that the, the troops or the population or the tanks or the helicopters that we're showing are are actually potentially still exactly where they were. And that's that's military grade intelligence. And so when you're looking at an armed conflict, that means there's another side that suddenly has the ability to see just as fast as you publish exactly where their targets might be. And so we have to really be careful when when we think, you know, oh, well, we'll just take the, you know, Wikipedia model and and put it all out there and everyone can have their say. But the thing is, we have access to technologies that other people don't, and those kinds of technologies have the potential to do more harm than good.
3: Could you give a concrete example of what you're talking about?
5: Sure. Um, imagine that you have a, uh, a satellite image of a wall of armor, if you will, a, a ton of tanks and, and mechanized vehicles moving at a city and you know that within two days those vehicles will overrun that city it's actually the stated intent of the general he said it on the news now if you issue an early warning to that city and you say you know you're going to be under attack in 24 hours um... they might all evacuate that city all the civilians might evacuate the problem is you might not have the whole picture. What happens if actually that armor column is just moving in one direction and in the exact opposite direction where everyone is fleeing, there's, there's a much larger minefield you don't necessarily know, you're not on the ground. So when you go out on a limb and you say, oh, I'm in the business of early warning and saving lives, we're still sitting here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We're not over there. And you really can't anticipate all the potential outcomes.
3: So what do you see as the ideal future of the Satellite Sentinel project? How do you see it progressing now?
5: So we finished the pilot phase with the Satellite Sentinel project on June of 2012. We were actually working on the signal program on human security and technology. And so we use a lot of the same technologies, but we do it a little bit different. And so we took all the successes we had with Satellite Sentinel. And now what we're doing is we're fusing it with more on the ground data. We're putting it together with those kinds of standards and ethics concerns. And we're looking for more places where we can apply these types of technologies, whether they be in Africa, in Europe, where we know that we can make a substantial difference in the lives of people who are under great threat of violence.
3: Has there ever been talk of this being sort of imperialism or or American colonialism or anything like that? Of course
5: there has. (laughs) Bloggers will say everything. Some people say it's the best thing that's ever happened. Other people say that it's, you know, an extension of, of some sort of colonialism. There are a lot of conspiracy theories, but if you go on the website or you read any of our reports, it's pretty clear what we're doing and what we're doing is we're looking at a vulnerable population of civilians uh, in between two armed actors, and we're trying to give them the best information we possibly can in near real time that makes them
6: safer.
3: Okay. And just for the record, how hot is George Clooney? <laughs> like up close and personal?
5: Uh, I, I couldn't say.
3: <laughs> you couldn't?
5: No, I can't. <laughs>
3: Hi. All right. Uh, Yeah, thank you so much. This sounds so fascinating. It must be amazing having like having all the different I guess it's science students and also
5: Uh, you know what history it's language arts we've got uh, one of our best analysts is a sophomore at Tufts and uh, he his major is drama it's really a crazy amalgam of fantastic young people who bring all different passions and you know they have this this real goal of tikkun olam and uh, you know all different races creeds and colors but But uh, everyone wants to have a, a substantial impact on a place where a lot of the world has given up.
3: So that was Benjamin Davies of uh, Satellites and Celebrities, and his session is going to be happening at 3 p.m. on October 14th. And you're listening to Shtetl on the shortwave, and we're going to be back with more uh, about Lamoud, more of the sessions that are coming up, and abor- about the pork apocalypse. We're just going to take a listen to a little bit of uh, Sudanese hip-hop, and then we're going to be back with uh, Evan Kleinman of The Punk Jews. <laughs> Shtetl on the shortwave on CKUT and now we've got Punk Jews which is a documentary film that follows an underground Jewish community expressing their identity in unconventional ways that challenge stereotypes and earlier this year I spoke to Evan Kleinman one of the filmmakers behind Punk Jews and here's his explanation of what the movement is all about.
6: The cult-Jews movement is an emerging movement in New York City of Jews expressing their identity in unconventional and unique ways that challenge stereotypes and break down barriers. It's a community of artists, activists, and musicians who are asserting their Jewish identity and in most cases defying the norm.
3: And how are they expressing their identity and their Jewishness in unconventional ways?
6: Um, Well, in our film we cover six stories stories range. They're quite diverse. One story is about the African-American Jewish community in New York. Um, Orthodox uh, African-American hip-hop artist love takes us into the community. Um, we cover uh, a Yiddish street performance group called the Sukkos Mob, who perform on the street Yiddish theater, which people may or may not know is a huge art form probably dating back to the early 20th century all the way to the 50s since then you know the yiddish language and the yiddish theater as an art form has been in decline so there's this group called the Sukkis Mob who are kind of giving it like a new modern like edgy flavor to it so we also cover a, a Hasidic punk rock band called Mashiach Oi who express their Judaism by screaming at the top of their lungs <laughs> basically the place where we discovered a lot of this kind of this cultural phenomenon going on uh, is at a gathering that takes place once a week in New York called Cholent, where uh, a huge diversity of Jews, a lot of Jews on the fringe, you might you may say, come together and you know, have a cultural exchange.
3: Can you explain what Cholent is?
6: Oh, the actual stew. Uh, well, yes, yeah, some people may have had this made for them by their, by their grandmothers. It, it can be a number of different in- ingredients depending on where... Uh, the person making it originates, whether they come from Poland or Hungary or other places in Europe. But it's a stew that's cooked traditionally on the Sabbath. Um, and it was kind of like a great Shabbos meal because you could just leave the stew kind of cooking on its own throughout the day and you can just take. And it was very easy to make. Also very delicious. do you explain
3: it? That explains why do you think that a group that is, I don't know if you'd say they're rebelling against their Jewish community in some ways, why would they choose a name which symbolizes like one of the most traditional foods that's eaten on a Jewish holiday, the Sabbath, every week? Why did they name their group Chulent?
6: The punk movement is not people who are rebelling against Judaism, per se. Okay. Um, you know, you have rebellions today all over the world, as we know, and with rebellion comes the sentiment that I'm right and you are wrong. The establishment is wrong and me, the, the rebel, is right. I, I wouldn't frame this as a rebellion like that. This is more just people just finding their own personal empowerment through their Judaism and through their cultural identity and finding community around it. You know, this is all it's, it's all something positive. It's all people who probably, you know, and myself included, experienced this, that's how I came upon this, just, you know, kind of felt like we were being forced into a box, you
3: know get outside the box a little bit so that was filmmaker evan kleinman and if you want you can check out the movie punk jews at lamoud and there are tons and tons of sessions to check out uh I actually just kind of realized that all the people that I've had on the show today happen to be men, but there are many, many fascinating women that will be at Lamud as well. There is one session that I'm going to be moderating, so I thought I'd mention that. It's Women Trailblazers talking with women in Montreal who are clergy, and it's very exciting because in Montreal at the Reform Temple here, for the first time ever, we have a senior rabbi, Rabbi Lisa Grushkow, who is the head. of of a synagogue here and so she's going to be one of the women who are on that panel and uh, this next clip is, um, is a little bit more serious. Earlier this year, I, I spoke to Rhonda Moskovitz, a Boston-based independent documentary filmmaker, and she is telling the story of a segment of the American Jewish population that's hardly ever talked about. It's Jews who are in prison for serious crimes and, and some who are on death row. And during her work making a documentary, she's attended various Passover seders. We, we, this was for the Passover show last year. Um, and she she's attended seders with locked-up Jews, including one, uh, a service at Sing Sing Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison in New York. And she told me she was shocked by the humanity she saw in the prisons there, but has had a hard time getting others to listen.
1: So maybe when it comes to Passover on Saturday night, Sunday night, uh, you'll be able to remember some of the music that was sung, some of the music that was played, and that will uh, create a sense of uh, happiness and joy and gladness, even here
0: at Sing Sing.
7: When I tell people I'm making a film about Jewish prisoners, 95% of them think I'm making a film about the Holocaust. Jewish, modern-day Jewish prisoners are just off people's radar. The veil of secrecy and the extent that this population is hidden really surprised me. And what also surprised me was the irrational button of shame that the subject matter pushes in people. And people who are normally social justice-minded and liberal, they have uh, an emotional negative reaction, just the idea that I'm making a film about Jewish prisoners. Not everybody is like this, but there are quite a few and actually I had one rabbi, he was a retired rabbi from Westchester County in New York, who actually was yelling at me that, that I was making a film and that I had more, I was trying to find funding, and he yelled at me that I would have more, better luck funding a film on Jews with leprosy and only anti-Semites would fund my film. This was shocking, but he mm-hmm. maybe expressed something that people fail.
3: So that was Rhonda Moskowitz talking about the making of her documentary about Jews on death row. And uh, she'll be at Lamoud sharing some of her footage. And during her session, Rhonda will also Skype with a rabbi who witnessed the execution of one of the film's subjects. Um, And uh, it's a a fascinating documentary. And her work is really, really meaningful and interesting. So I'm excited to go to that session. Um, And now for something a little bit different our new segment, Pigs in the News. I don't know if it's a new segment, but our first segment, Pigs in the News. Uh, Last week, UK's National Pig Association sounded an alarm bell that echoed loudly around the world. In 2013, there will be an unavoidable global bacon shortage. Word of the coming apocalypse startled many, including prominent mock news anchor Stephen Colbert.
7: Nation, they say... That this bacon shortage is caused by global warming and crop failure. But I believe this bacon shortage is a conspiracy. A (laughs) Bay-conspiracy. Just think about it, okay? Who's not supposed to eat bacon? Well, Jews first. But most of the Jews I know do anyway. No. I'm talking about the really observant Jews. Muslims.
3: (laughs) So here at Shtetl, we love good conspiracy theory. So we called up a Jew who knows a lot about pork to see if he had any inside information. Jeffrey Yoskowitz is the founder and editor of Pork Memoirs, a website that features personal stories from Jews about their complicated relationship with the forbidden meat. And Shtetl detective Marley Wasser interrogated the hell out of him in the hopes of solving the case of the looming apocalypse. Take a listen.
8: If there was a bacon conspiracy going on, who do you think would be behind it?
3: Uh, who
9: would be behind the bacon conspiracy? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I just don't think that it's in the Jewish interest to get rid of bacon. So in fact, so much of Judaism, it actually is, uh, religiously, uh, this idea that having it around us and rejecting it makes not eating it a higher act, a higher deed. So
8: you mean if we didn't have the smell of it all around us, it would be too easy to ignore the temptation of eating bacon?
9: Oh, exactly, exactly. It enhances the experience. Not everyone would agree with that, but there's actually, uh, in the Talmud, it, it, that's discussed, not that specific situation, but the idea of these things that, we are, that are forbidden or, or that we're not supposed to partake in, you know, living in a community where we don't have that, it makes it a little bit easier to do, you know, it, it, even among ultra-Orthodox Jews, to them, there's a benefit to being surrounded by the smell of bacon on a Sunday morning. Is something that they reject. I don't. I'm not sure. And I, from based on my research, I don't think something like that similar exists within Islam. So I could see why they would just want to be rid of bacon in all its wonderfulness.
8: So you're sort of agreeing with Colbert saying that you believe that it would be in the interest of Muslims to get rid of bacon more than Jews. But would you agree with his characterization of you know all his Jewish friends are eating bacon anyway?
9: Uh, well, I wouldn't agree with him because I'm a as a Jewish <laughs> person who has uh, I guess up uh, some people call it an obsession. I just call it with a keen interest in in pork and the symbolism uh, thereof. I myself do not eat pork, uh, and I'd say most of my friends who are Jewish do not. In uh, and, and honest, a lot of my non-Jewish friends don't, because many of them are vegetarians. Uh, but um, I will say, through through my research and work and through pork memoirs, I have met many cultural Jews who who do eat pork. Um, I wouldn't say most. In fact, I'd say most of my Jewish friends do not eat pork. But many, many definitely do, uh, especially in the food world. Uh, it's pretty rare to be uh, kind of a Jew in the in the general uh, artisanal food world and to not enjoy pork. I often stand out uh, like a sore thumb.
8: Really? So what happens oh, yeah, when you yeah. go out, go out to brunch? I get a lot brunch? of flack.
9: For a lot of Jewish food writers uh, who you wouldn't always expect it from, but they, uh, yeah, I get some flack, you know, for not eating pork and not experiencing everything that all these restaurants and chefs have to offer.
8: Is it difficult for you when you go out for brunch? Do you get teased?
9: Uh, brunch, not so much.
8: Kind of more
9: fancy dinners, or especially kind of uh, more. You know, I, I go to these events sometimes and work with different chefs, and you know, actually work in some of their kitchens. And sometimes I turn away, uh, you know, special dishes that have been slaved over for three, four days. I've watched the process. Sometimes I've even been a part of the process, and then I get some flack.
8: I'm starting to feel a little bit suspicious that maybe you might be behind this bacon conspiracy.
9: Ha-ha. um uh, you know, I if I could pull that together, I wouldn't though. You know, because so much of of so much of what I do and my interest is in is in how people interact with pigs with pork. Uh, I'm so fascinated by how we all respond to it differently. Uh, this taboo, this symbol. You know, for me, I mean, what would I have to do? I mean, I afterwards, if there's no pork, no pigs, I mean, I'd just be less interested in food and in what people eat. I mean, I'm interested in what people don't eat as much as what they do. So to take away away pigs and pork, you know, then all these Jews who define their identity by not eating pork, what do they have? Because if pork's not much of an issue, you know, are they going to turn to shrimp? And will shrimp be the new defining characteristic of what it means to be Jewish or what it means to be Muslim? For Muslims, certainly not.
8: Do you think shrimp memoirs would have the same kind of ring to it?
9: No, it just doesn't have the same ring, and I just don't think it has, doesn't have the same symbolism. It doesn't have the same history. You know, uh, the temple when it was destroyed by the Greeks, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago or, or more. They weren't putting shrimp or lobster on the altar, you know, to, to you know, desecrate it and to humiliate the Jews. They were putting pork. They weren't forcing Jews, you know, to eat shrimp in the street. They were ma- making them eat pork. So, you know, we have that legacy of, of this pork taboo. Uh, in our mind, in our subconscious, that you just can't transpose onto something else. We'd have to wait to put the lips out.
3: Wow. That's pretty fascinating. And of course, you know, shtetl on the shortwave, that's where everybody goes for their hard hitting investigative journalism. So thanks to Marley Wasser for interrogating pork memoirs, curator, Jeffrey Yaskowitz. And Yoskowitz is going to be giving a DIY Jewish pickling workshop at Lomud. So you can check him out and walk away with your very own jar of soon to be sour pickles and green beans. And that really takes us to the end of shtetl on the shortwave. Thank you so much for tuning in, uh, to check out some great articles, in particular one about Burning Man with um, a photo essay by photographer, secret artist, uh, go to shtetlmontreal.com and check out the magazine and we'll be back in two weeks and I thought we'd go out with a little bit of Regina Spector because uh, she's coming to Montreal next week and uh, it would be awesome if she could come on to shtetl, but if she can't, at least we have her music. All right, see you October 14th at the
10: Sound, we listened to it twice because the DJ was asleep. This is how it works you're young until you're not, you love until you. Yourself, you take the things you like, then try to love the things you took, and then you take that love you made, and stick it into some someone else's heart. Pump in someone else's blood and walk walking arm in arm. You hope it don't get hard But even if it does you just do it all feet in are the pretty. Man.
2: But can they open the
10: up radio? You'll hear November rain. Uh- That solo's awful long But it's a good refrain To listen